Welcome to Bitcoin Fixes This, where we explore the impact that Bitcoin will have in all aspects of society. Today's guest is Willie Wu, engineer, trader, and Bitcoiner. We talk about trading, Bitcoin as the biggest financial innovation ever, and the outlook for Bitcoin going forward. Willie also tells us about how he started his career as an engineer, how he got into training, and some lessons he learned along the way. Willie is quite the renaissance man. He's not only a great trader, but he's also a data analyst, an entrepreneur, and a world traveler. One of the things that impresses me about him is that he's fully aware of how fortunate he's been. As you'll see, he says he should have gotten wrecked, but was lucky not to when he didn't know what he was doing. Hopefully, you can learn a bit about the art of trading in this interview. Willie Woo, how's everything going, man? <laughs> Great, Jimmy. Great. Yep. It's, you know, my favorite year in every four years. <laughs> like I suppose years, that could be true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like the presidential election or the Olympics or something comes around every four years. Yep. Yeah. This, this is the year that we don't get to sleep much and everything's on, you know cocaine so to speak <laughs> <laughs> everyone's on cocaine yeah interesting interesting hey you're over in hong kong right like how is everything over there yeah this is actually the first time i've lived in hong kong apart from my early years when i was born here first time as an adult for a long length of time and certainly enjoyed it because you know hong Kong's one of the centers of bitcoin at least in asia and I guess throughout the world because we have a lot of the major exchanges here and there's a lot of very smart people in the industry, lots of funds, people, a lot of finance people. And so, yeah, they're all operating at a very high level and even, <laughs> even the community stuff, which I'm naturally drawn to, is run very professionally here. So, yeah, I've been enjoying that and I guess... It's been an interesting place too because I came here, what, like, who was it? Before the COVID, it was kind of like 2019. There were lots of protests, the protests in the political situation here with China stamping the extradition law. And and so, yeah, it was an interesting time to come. And, mm. and obviously now that the world's kind of in lockdown everywhere, I've ended up here and being, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess forced to be in one spot because, you know, normally I'm, I'm traveling, you know, at least 10 to 20 countries a year. So that's been a change, but it's, you know, this is a, you know, it's a bustling city <laughs> when everyone's outside <laughs> sometimes <laughs> when lockdown's not on. <laughs> so yeah, it's been a good year pretty much I mean, a lot better than you know i think other people in other parts of the world where they're cooped up inside and yeah so yeah makes sense makes sense so a lot of people know you as sort of like this amazing trader and stuff but can you sort of give a background of your history for our audience like you know what you did before uh you know how you got into bitcoin trading and so on yeah great it's funny because people know me as a trader but I've never seen myself as a trader, though. I probably do that a lot nowadays. I, you know, my background is as an engineer, a design engineer in a mechanical design kind of background, mechanical designers and products. It's engineering bachelors. And so I started my early career in designing medical equipment. Um, and then from there branched off into the startup world predominantly because i grabbed see i was raised in new zealand and like it's a big thing there to do your big overseas experience so you know in your 20s you you don a backpack and you explore and so i left my engineering job and traveled for about six months throughout the world and i took a little Palm Pilot with me, so that kind of dates me. <laughs> so the first, for the people that don't know what the heck that is, it is this kind of pre-Jurassic era version of a iPhone, right? It's the first computing device that was kind of popular, that people carried in their pockets, and it was a very primitive version of mobile computing. 
And actually, that was the first occurrence. I, the first time I saw this PayPal app, mm. people don't realize that PayPal before it did internet payments through through web and before their email, they tried to beam money between palm pilots. That's um, right. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that was my first time that I got really passionate about stuff and I got really passionate about mobile computing. And I came back to New Zealand and then decided I wanted to learn all about this. And I ended up building lots of websites for these Palm Pilot software startups that were sort of popping up everywhere in the States. And I got exposed to like startups through that and eventually um, started my own doing, you know, mobile software that did quite well. And then I left that project. That was kind of like a I make it that was like a what uh, maybe a five year stint of my life, and it was a crazy like work 100 hour week type stint, and I loved it. And when that ended, that chapter ended, I took some time out, and more or less inside that zone, I kind of started another venture. And in that venture, one of our lead devs said Bitcoin had just broken. What was it? A thousand dollars, I think. It just, you know, that 2013 run up, Bitcoin had just broken a thousand dollars. And I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what Bitcoin was. And I, he told me what it was. And I kind of thought, oh, that's interesting. And, and, you know, I had invested in gold prior, prior in the world financial sort of era with a, a 2008 world financial crisis. So I had a bit of experience with it. I also was, playing derivative markets and shorting banks. This was kind of my timeout zone, sort of played with those markets. And so I was familiar with gold and I thought, well, um, I've seen technology come along and digitize things like how MP3s were digitized into, uh, sorry, CDs were digitized into MP3s and eventually, you know, the, the iPod came out and I, you know, I've seen the web take over magazines and newspapers and it made sense that this thing could have a shot at it and if it took over gold since it was touted as a digital gold it was about back then four hundred fifty thousand dollars per coin and four hundred fifty dollars or four hundred fifty what did i say four hundred fifty thousand dollars per coin and you know this is at that point I was like going, well, it's pretty cheap right now, given it's not even a, th- you know, it, it, by the time I bought, it was like $600. Uh-huh. So I was like, oh, I'll just buy a little, just see how it goes. And, you know, as it happens, you sort of go down a rabbit hole. And when I had more time, and it was till, it was around 2016 that I had more time to really delve into it. Yeah, that was when I went fully into it, into researching what later became, you know, what you see now, which is analyzing the blockchain for investment signals. So, but it was a bit of a journey from buying in Italian in 2013, early parts of 2014, you know, getting involved in the community was another aspect of it and getting fully into Bitcoin. There was a a big sort of learning curve. I was listening to a lot of podcasts. It was very technical at the time. And yeah, so that was kind of my journey. People know me as a trader, but actually I was more interested in the technical elements of it. And I approached the this as like an emerging technology. I looked at it like a startup with an adoption S curve for a startup technology. So a lot of that early sort of startup and the earlier engineering um, experience was sort of woven into this analysis of the Bitcoin markets because it behaves quite differently, very different from normal traditional markets. And I think unless anyone's been invested in startups, they probably won't understand. They'll probably think it's a bubble and they'll probably side on, you know, people like Peter Schiff's thinking that, you know, how can something continue to go up and up and up? It's got to be a bubble. And so, yeah, that was my introduction. Okay. You mentioned that you were sort of active during the great financial crisis and that you had gone into gold. Can you like 
expound a little more on the beginnings of your trading career? Yeah, <laughs> it was very noobish. I was in Bali at the time. I was in a yoga retreat, you know, I was doing a bit of R&R and relaxing after, you know, 100 hour weeks for years on end. And I was sharing a room, my roommate at the retreat, yoga retreat was um, like, he was an old, old, old boy surfer from New Zealand. And he'd been pretty successful financially through his life. And he was just dabbling in forex trading and this and that in the markets and I was I just looked at what he was doing and, and he started to show me, oh you know, the, what's happening right now is the banks are completely screwed and we're gonna have a, a really big crash, right? You know, and it's coming. It's just don't know when, but it's coming. And mm. so he was showing me what he was doing and he was buying put options on banks and he was buying gold and you know and so he kind of gave me a little bit of a mentorship into markets and I dabbled a bit with my some of my startup money that I'd exited with and I guess I was quite lucky not to be skinned alive because like <laughs> if you're a noob coming into a market <laughs> you know you should be pretty wrecked and certainly I was investing and or tra- I, I'd say I was investing but it's actually trading right when you're buying put options and paper instruments on gold over a short time period like I was being less than a year or two yeah it was I was trading and yeah it was a very interesting time you know like I was preparing for this thing I was also sailing at the time (laughs) learning to sail and I remember (laughs) I set sail out of New Zealand an old friend called me back and said can you want a crew and I said sure so we set sailed on his old 50 foot concrete boat that sailed at three knots which is ridiculous it's three knots most people can walk at three knots Um, we sailed for weeks on end in this boat into the pacific and the day we set sail at walking pace (laughs) the world financial crisis hit on that day Mm. you know and so like we were out in the middle of pacific for weeks on end and all we had was shortwave radio and, you know, you just could hear the entire world was changing. Mm. Like, because people don't remember in that time. Well, they didn't even know because I was following it quite closely. There were even like, there was one point in electronic run on the banks where like hundreds of billions of dollars was being withdrawn from banks in a matter of hours. And mm. I think the Fed quietly pumped in a number of trillion dollars into the system to stall that run on the banks. And so the whole, you know, if you'd been around that time and been following it, we were perhaps even at points 48 hours to a total systemic meltdown. If we'd lost the banks, all of world trade would have frozen up and then we would have had a sticky situation where, you know, everything stops, including food being stopped at the supermarket. So it was a pretty crazy time and I, you know, I got back ashore and, you know, got something like 1,500 emails to clear, of which many were from (laughs) my broker saying, should you be selling these put options and stuff like that? (laughs) And like, seriously, you'd think I would have cleaned it up because those options went 13x in those two weeks. But gold also got wrecked because what I didn't understand was when everything crashes everyone runs to the us dollar and reassesses and so all all trade all your trades get deleveraged everything goes to us dollars so my gold got wrecked but as much as the bank puts kind of mooned so you know that was my experience and eventually i had some physical sold gold and um, i sold that many years later and it was just a big experience around Like, what did I learn? I learned a lot about gold as a store of value. Gold being this asset that couldn't be, like, it didn't have a nationality. So I was learning about that decentralized aspect of gold and it being a bearer instrument. And it was something we could, like, put in a chest and bury it on a secret island. And so, and, you know, the research on that was, I think, 
in the 70s where we had oil shocks. I think there were people that were lining the keels of their boats with bars of gold and sailing around the world to get away from the craziness. And so it was interesting to see how there were these cycles that had happened in the past economically where people thought the whole system was screwed and was going for a safe haven and getting out of it. So got a taste of what it was to be like a gold bug and also the constant. It's actually quite a negative thing, eh, to like – I felt it was a very negative thing to be in gold because gold itself is a bet against the system. Mm. And you'll notice that as you go down the gold rabbit hole, all the news is about why the financial system is broke and why you're smart to hold gold and that's going to go up. And so you're kind of on one side wanting your asset base to go up, but on the other side you're hoping the entire system burns. (laughs) <laughs> um, and it's kind of, you know, <laughs> it's it's not very happy, happy, you know, and I, I think like, yeah, it's, yeah, I, you remember the, the story of the big short, the movie, the big short, mm-hmm. I think the filmmakers were interviewing the people that went through those events and they said it was literally like, it was very stressful betting against the system. All these guys had huge positions for the system to melt down. They made huge money but it was at great personal costs and great stress and so that's interesting and (laughs) the great thing about being bitcoin it has a bit of that because you're insured against the system going down but actually it's more than that it's a really positive thing because it's building a new system a much better system and so it's got way more like i feel like you know, all of us in the industries are sort of gatekeepers, not gatekeepers, more custodians of, you know, this future that can be a lot better. And so, yeah, and it's so early. So I think what you're saying is like gold is like booting an old system. Bitcoin is like booting a new system, something like that. Yeah, it's, yeah, you know, gold's so ancient, you know, and it's, Mm. It's ridiculous. Like, like I think a lot of people in gold think, you know, we're going to have a gold-backed currency and that's going to be great because it'll be honest money again. But actually, I think about gold and it's like it's really returning to the past. It's been around for 6,000 years and we already could see that, you know, it really didn't keep up with the industrial age. And so we went to a paper currency that was backed by gold you know the speed of commerce happens faster than you can ship lumps of gold around the globe (laughs) so then you you know it's then you've got central parties and and you have to trust them that they've got the gold you know there was constant talk about does the does the fed have the gold to back the currency is any gold in fort knox all this sort of stuff and like i like what i like about bitcoin now is you know, it is internet age currency. And one of the thoughts I have a lot these days, it was really something I heard from Steve Jobs when he spoke, talking about, he was pitching, he was pitching designers in a design conference saying, you know, like this is back in the, I think in the eighties, he said, you know, like when, when TV was first invented, The first broadcasts we did was essentially radio shows with pictures. Mm -hmm. It was just radio broadcasters with a camera in front of them. And they didn't know what that medium wanted to express itself with. And it took 20 years before the sitcom was created. And, and And he said there, we don't know what this medium is, but it is a medium and these computers will talk to each other. And we don't know what the preferred medium of these computers will be. And it was 20 years later, after those 80, the 80s, that we had our first social networks. And back in the early 90s, the first websites were radio with pictures. It was e-zines, it was newspapers trying to republish their print newspaper onto a print website with no interaction, no interactivity 
so yeah, it became true. And I think what we're doing right now with Bitcoin and all of the, the crypto space, Ethereum and whatnot, is we're trying to create this traditional financial system and digitize it. Mm. But we're like only, you know, it's 12 years old, but um, probably the start point where a lot of people got involved in it was, you know, maybe six or seven um, years ago. Like we're probably a dozen years away from this thing really creating a something new that we've never seen before. And so mm. when I compare that arc to let's go to a gold standard and ship bars of gold around the world, I think that's just crazy talk. I think, you know, like people like, the, like Peter Schiff who have been, you know, rightfully backing gold through their their time, I think they've they can't see they haven't been exposed to this the amount of changes we've had in the last 25, 30 years since you know computers have been around and like it's I feel like we're gonna we're all gonna be blown away by what, what the thing's gonna turn into and we none of us have an idea what it will be. Yeah, I, it's very bright to me. I think it's a really bright future mm. and yeah. You know, typically these things get reinvented every hundred years, you know, like the last time we re really created the systems that the world runs on was about a hundred years ago and it's due for an overhaul. Yeah. Yeah, it's exciting. Times. Indeed we are. <laughs> Indeed we are. So we, we got a lot of threads that we can pull on here. But let's talk a little bit more about like the future and and sort of contrasting it with gold, because this is something that I think a lot of older people just don't get. And I think you kind of hinted at it with Peter Schiff. In what way, like what's their mentality and why don't they get it? Because it seems to me that they've seen a lot of different innovations in their lives, even just the internet and like being able to email and do Twitter and things like that. Why is it so hard for them to sort of get wrap their minds around Bitcoin as opposed to something like gold? You'd have to ask Peter that, you know, I don't spend much time with people that are in, I don't know, I do have a lot of friends that are in his age bracket, but it's just funny that they're the ones that have kept up with things and they have really open minds, you know. And But I'd say a lot of my friends are a lot younger than me and I've always gravitated towards, like, you know, a lot of new things. And maybe it's, maybe it's just – I think we get – we're all filters, right? We're all filters. We filter everything that's going around the world, you know, around us. We filter it according to our biases and i think it's a lot more difficult if you're surround you've got a, a very you know established circle of friends that or colleagues that share the same bias you get into maybe this calcification where things there's nothing in your world that really changes and you've got these filters up that are very very strong and you know one of the things that like I think maybe it's because I've traveled so much. I've been pretty nomadic for large parts of my life. It's I've had no choice but to, you know, be exposed to a lot of different ways of thinking. And mm. I think it's really easy to use the mental models that you've created through a lifetime and make the assumption that that's that those models are going to hold true even in a world that's changing so quickly. That's my guess. Yeah. <laughs> that is interesting because I did a bit of world travel myself in, in my younger days, and I do feel like that that did maybe open up something that maybe a lot of people that haven't traveled, like it doesn't really click for them or something to that effect. There's definitely something there. What do you think it is about world travel or... I don't know, like experiencing different things that makes you more open to, you know, new possibilities, I guess. I guess, I mean, the first thing you do when you do world travel, and I don't mean just 
like a holiday, I mean right. world travel, where you're going to pack up your bags and you're going for a year or something. Well, the first thing you've got to do is quit your job, right? Yeah. And so you're immediately throwing away the thing that's going to hold you to some level of security. And so when you arrive, you're not clinging too much and you're very open-minded. Mm. It's it really. I mean, for someone who hasn't done it, I think most people have these days. But I don't know. It's well, at least just, from New Zealand, definitely. But, yeah, yeah, definitely like, from New Zealand. Um, yeah, not like, so much in the US. <laughs> it's almost this like, yeah, it's like it's a full physical, mental, emotional experience, right? Oh my god, mm. everything's new, and suddenly this immense amount of energy comes in in through you. It's like wow, everything's pops, everything's different. And so it's like, yeah, you shed probably a decade of age immediately <laughs> and everything's like vivid and in full color and smells and sights and sounds and you're absorbing it all and you're, you're for sure not in Kansas anymore. So, yeah, so like you, you get that enough times. Like you're going to open your mind up to a lot of different things, you know, and it's not just like maybe the economic theories of gold, but you'll meet a whole lot of different people because you got no friends, you know, <laughs> you've yeah, left your friends right. behind. <laughs> so you're exposed to a lot of things, you know, and like now you've got these, you know, I think digital nomad communities and so people have even made a lifestyle out of it. And so you get these communities that are super well-traveled and, and I noticed there's Bitcoin is very prevalent amongst travelers, even like five, six years ago, you know, like you go onto a co-working space and actually a lot of them took Bitcoin and a lot of travelers were uh, using Bitcoin because it was such a good way to get across borders where they were having trouble, like banking their finance, their banks, they weren't working very well when you go cross border. So, you know, a lot of people talk about, you know, Bitcoin doesn't fix this. We usually say Bitcoin fixes this, but when we talk about banks, a lot of people say, well, I have no problem with my bank. It works fine. You know, I send money and it arrives. And, and I'm like, well, you just haven't used it globally. You, have, you try sending money from your bank here to the middle of Indonesia or Pakistan or India or, you know, it just doesn't work. It totally doesn't work. You think it kind of works if you're willing to wait two weeks or maybe six weeks, if in, you know, and it's very fragile. And so I keep meeting people and a lot of my friends have been in situations where their you know, credit cards stopped working in this country or the ATM card stopped working or their whole bank account got shut down because they've detected fraud because you popped up in a new country and tried to use their banking services. And they're like helpless without money in the middle of nowhere. And they pop up and go, well, anyone in this region want to buy some of my Bitcoins so I can get some cash in the local country? And that's what got them out of the sticky mess, right? <laughs> so, yeah, the world does not work well. The financial world does not work well once you you use this new interconnected, totally global kind of like, I mean, generation we're in now. And I think the people that have built the legacy banking system has never lived globally <laughs> yeah. quite in this way before. And they don't realize what they built is completely broken. You know, I want to use expletives because I've been so frustrated. That's <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> I could start ranting right now. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to trading a little bit because <laughs> like it's crazy to me that you were in startups and doing all this, you know, medical equipment, design engineer stuff and mobile computing. And then all of a sudden you get into this gold stuff and you mentioned that you should have gotten wrecked, but you didn't. And you were lucky to not have gotten wrecked. Why do you say that? What's your analysis on like how lucky you were in the beginning? How did you come to that conclusion? Because I was trading some highly volatile assets that like they're not beginner, they're derivative instruments. I was trading through a systemic failure of the world financial system where like <laughs> 
a lot of very large funds and corporations and banks got completely wrecked. So it was a very volatile time, and I could have totally had my, could have had my ass handed to me, even though I was on the right side of the bet, you know. But I didn't navigate the little bits correctly, and but you know, bring it more to you know your standard trading. Let's say outside of like this crazy particular time where there was a financial crisis and like essentially when you're trading there's a sea of participants and that's a very asymmetrical advantage that the winners are going to have they're going to have better knowledge they're going to have better capital and you're going in there with you know very little little skills because as you're starting out you don't have any skills you're going to be very very emotional because you got to like get completely hammered by the markets and learn to control your emotions, both the FOMO and the fear. And so I kind of liken trading to maybe playing American football. And yeah, you're just betting, you know, bull or bear. You're betting to make yards or, you know, the other side's betting to push it the other way. And as you start out, you're essentially you know you're just a spectator you bought a ticket that makes you in the game but you're a spectator you're saying i'm gonna bet on it making 20 yards on the next move and but the real traders on the field because they've got so much capital they can push the price around and so like if they see the audience is like betting in one direction, they'll go, wow, there's a lot of money to be made if I push this in the other direction and I can get them all liquidated. And so effectively, that's what happens in markets in the very short timescales. And you can actually see that trading, trading these digital assets. You can see big walls of money shepherding the price up and down, or we can just see actual patterns in the price chart and they're really trying to get the price to move in a direction where they can liquidate traders on the wrong side of the trade and obviously someone who's got a hundred million dollars that can guarantee for a very short amount of time they can hold a line and push it another direction they're going to have a massive advantage against you know someone with very little capital and also they know that if when it starts going the other direction you might be able to get a cascade of emotions running. So, yeah, most traders lose. Generally, the number is 90% of traders lose, 10% win. And Arthur Hayes commented on BitMEX, which is the most, uh, at the time, the most liquid you know, platform exchange that people traded Bitcoin on. It was 1% of traders made money while 99% lost over the long term. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, everybody thinks I can beat the market. And I remember one of the things that Ray Dalio says about this is, I think that he said, I think that beating the markets is harder than winning the gold medal in the Olympics. He's been in that game his entire life and he still gets his ass handed to him. And he's out there on the streets and he keeps meeting people that think they can beat the markets. Yet he doesn't <laughs> meet many people that can win, they think they can win gold at the Olympics. And <laughs> yeah, so it's something like that, you know. A lot of people try and learn a technique and, you know, practice that. But yeah, it's not that easy to beat the markets. Bitcoin's kind of different in that. In the bull season, you see a lot of people thinking they're geniuses because everything's going up and and Bitcoin goes up more often than not, like over the long run. So, yeah, but like I think you get a lot of people thinking they're really good traders and but they do eventually once that the market changes, you know, it's a different story. Yeah, that's trading, you know. I'm not really painting a great (laughs) picture of it. (laughs) Well, I want to pull on something that you just said, which is that in the traditional markets, you said it's about 90-10, right? Like 90% Mm -hmm. lose, 10% win. But on like BitMEX, it's like 99-1. Why is it even more extreme in Bitcoin than in traditional markets? Okay, so most of our markets are unregulated. 
So it is a full on no, so no holds barred, you know, like there are a lot of things you can't do in, in regulated markets, which you can do in Bitcoin because it's a completely free asset. So heck, you know, if I could raise a hundred million dollars and then um, leverage that up 10x, I can put a $1 billion buy wall onto the global unregulated markets and I can move that wall up like a moving wall of death and there's no trader that's going to, you know, sell into my buy wall or buy into my sell wall. Mm -hmm. So you can do this stuff, right? And the crazy leverages we've got in Bitcoin up to 100 plus 250x, it means, yeah, it's a different kind of game, you know. I'd say it's freer. Also, I think there's a lot of, like, foul play, I think it's been cleaned up a lot. Like anyone who's trading the 2018, 2019 phase of Bitcoin's market when BitMEX had dominance could see that um, the price would would uh, attack traders. Literally, you know, there was a lot of stop hunting where the price would move in a direction that would liquidate traders in one direction. And then sometimes the next minute it would go in the other direction and liquidate the other side. And, you know, I was, I'd say that the, the short term price of Bitcoin is determined by a random walk in the direction that liquidates the most traders on BitMEX. And <laughs> uh, yeah, so <laughs> it's like, you know, there's some talk, there's a case on right now where there's there's like a case that they're saying that BitMEX was actually counter trading their clients. So we'll see how that, that happens. But, you know, it's unregulated. So you could build an exchange and you see all the order books and go, I'll liquidate those guys and I'll liquidate these guys. So <laughs> maybe, maybe we saw all sorts of crap happen with Mt. Cox, right? So, so yeah. With You can always sort of like manipulate the markets. And essentially the picture that you're making is one of like a giant shark saying, oh man, that looks really tasty. I'm going to go gobble all of them up. And you get like these 99% of traders that are getting gobbled up in those leverage moves or something like that. Yeah. It's like whales farming the the schools of fish. Mm. And like certainly like when you're the different markets are different, you know, like Bitcoin's a very, very tough market to trade, particularly during that BitMEX era. I think it's a lot easier now. Those liquidations are gone. But the there's, you know, whatever, like probably 5,000 markets in crypto now because all the these altcoin markets, DeFi tokens, all sorts of Ponzi's and whatnot being traded. And I actually encourage people to trade that. And that I think, like, you know, on the one side, you, you're going to lose your money. On the other side, you're <laughs> going to have a lot of lessons and you'll start to understand how finance works at a very experiential level. And, you know, when I traded, learned to trade back in 2014, live trade when crypto outside of the early phase of that I had, like I was trading crappy little markets where there was only, you know, I, I had $5,000 that I was trading in my account and I found out that I was doing, you know, five to 10% of the daily volume in that tiny little market. And then I could now push the market around. And I knew because I was glued to the screen for days on end trying to learn this market that I think there's only five to 10 people in the room. The rest are like tiny little people that aren't like that, maybe trading a hundred dollars. <laughs> I'm trading 5,000. I can push the price around. And so I realized that, you know, that's how these markets work. There's a few whales that whatever size the market is that control that and they're fighting it up amongst themselves to essentially like milk as much as they can from everyone else. And, you know, like I'm, I was quite interested in thinking, well, heck, if you've got a lot of these 16-year-olds, 13-year-olds trading in their bedrooms, controlling markets with, you know, $1,000 or so, like, I don't think people would have had that experience until they were in a, you know, very large head fund 
you know, with, you know, a billion dollars in their trade account and learning it at that level. We've got this whole generation of people who have grown up, grown up crypto and really experienced what it is to pump and dump markets <laughs> and also defend against it. And then now we've, you're seeing like this whole Wall Street bets thing happen. And it's like, it's like suddenly all this time learning to trade has become a form of self-defense because mm-hmm. the military, the dominant military force now is financial militarization of the markets. And so in a way, crypto's brought us, you know, the equivalent of the firearm, you know, a democratization mm-hmm. of power. And it comes even down to figuring out how markets work in an experiential way. So I found that quite interesting. And I know like a lot of maximalists, you know, it's, you know, it's all shit coins and all this stuff, but it actually <laughs> serves a purpose for learning. I mean, no doubt the majority are Ponzi's, no doubt, you know, people are get rich quick, but I think there's kind of lessons that people are learning and that they might be more valuable in the end than, I think they'll be valuable, let's just say that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because the picture that you're putting in my mind is of these like tiny markets that are completely manipulated. But essentially, what you're saying is all markets are like that. And it's kind of like this tug of war where, as a trader, you almost have to go to battle and, you know, defend your position and like wreck the other guy. And it, it's almost like a basketball game or something and not necessarily about the fundamentals underneath. It's more about like, you know, sort of playing the trading game in the correct way and getting enough people on your side or something. That's the mental picture I'm getting. Yeah, that's in the short time frames for sure, yes. So there's like, it's kind of like I zoom in in a short time frame, you play that game. And then when you zoom out, there's this really nice investor investor model that comes out. That's an investor game, right, where you, you sink money into this, this burgeoning monetary technology and you wait for that adoption, the adoption S curve. And then it's much more like investing in the future. So this is where like hodling makes a lot of sense because you're investing with time horizons of four years, maybe eight, maybe 12 and so forth, or maybe forever, right? Because you're investing in the future and that's the new money. That makes a lot of sense to me. So that's the sort of range of, from trading to investing, I think it's just this, this complete spectrum. Short time frames is essentially American football gaining yards. And then you've got the long time frame, which is about investing in the future. And then somewhere in the middle is, I think, a lot of the work that I do, which is trying to understand how this market works now that we've got a blockchain and we can see capital movements and we can tell a lot about what's happening with this technology, then the participants involved. And that's a bit I'm really interested in. The And actually, if I was to trade, I'm going to trade those long time frame swings where within, you know, the shortest time frames I trade are six weeks, say, where I can see a whole lot of capital coming in. And this thing's going to run and maybe it's getting overheated above fundamental value and the speculators are are really riding it up. That's where I'll exit from that kind of move to where are we in the macro cycle? Are we in the beginning and the the top or are we in a bear cycle? Zooming right out to how far in the entire adoption S curve are we, you know, are we, in the first 1% of the population to 15, are we at majority? So that's the bit that I'm finding more interesting. And like by understanding that, I think it's, oh, it's an exciting space. You know, we're, we're all got this privilege of being involved in this industry and this asset. I think as a friend told me today, he said, this is kind of like the most the biggest thing that's happened to finance since like forever, <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like forever, literally, if, if you look back the history of finance, I don't think there's any other history, you know, 
crux point in the history of finance that is as important as this, short of its inception, which would have been, you know, <laughs> like a very slow moving inception over many, many generations and lifetimes. So, yeah. It's a fascinating it's a big point. innovation for sure. I wanted to go back to what you said about sort of like the financial militarization, because there is sort of like this exorbitant privilege that the US dollar uses. How does that factor into your analysis of the economy and the markets and you know how you approach trading? Yeah, that's when I think about finance being militarized. It's firstly, like, I mean, we're seeing it now. There's, you know, since the common reporting standards come in, which is an extension of FACTA a few years back, where if you're an American, any bank in the world had to report essentially back to America of all of your financial activity. And I think there wasn't a massive outcry and the powers that be figured that they could get away with that. They rolled it out to the rest of the country, uh, countries in the world. And now well, everything about finances has to be, you know, AML, KYC, you know, like you've got to figure out, you've got to verify you are who you are. You've got to verify where all the money comes from. And so to this immense amount of friction for us, but also for governments, it gives them an immense amount of power. And it's a... You know, it's a really nice power to have because if there's a person that is up to no good in your eyes, rather than seeing military force in there, you can surgically freeze all that person's accounts and you get full access to, to stopping flows of money everywhere once you know who it is that's moving that money. And so, like... I think that's the main thing we usually see day to day. You know, I, I've just sold a house, an investment property, and I was just swearing to my friend that I'm not going to buy another house ever again for investment because <laughs> the amount of paperwork. Not only did I have to do verify my identity, give documents to the real estate agent, the real estate agent, okay, not accountants, not banks, the real estate agent that, like, where did you get the money to buy this house? You know, send them them, them do those documents so that they would then be okay to list my property. And then also, you know, the same thing with the, the solicitor who processed that transaction through to the banks i'm not even sure if i can move that money easily now to you know because i don't that's the house in new zealand i don't because i live in hong kong now i'm going oh i'm gonna have to call the bank up and try and figure out whether or not they will take a wire transfer to us dollars to another bank i have in another country and so it's just like the amount of friction to do one transaction which is you know it's a house it's a house like ordinary people are going to do this transaction it's not like I'm a billionaire that's making this ridiculous investment. And so that amount of friction is upon us all. And each step of the way, I had to pay a notary service and it was costing me the equivalent of 200 US dollars per document to be notarized multiple times on in that. And so like the burden on society and the friction of this old system is ridiculous. And you come over to crypto and everything's just click and point. There's no, it's just a free system. If I want to achieve something, do something, make an investment, it can happen instantly. I can move, you know, ridiculous amounts of money on the Bitcoin blockchain across the world globally at next to no cost. No, not much in the way of KYC AML. It's only when I have to touch the old system, everything slows down. And I think... Even if we were to move into this world where we have kind of a half pure crypto where it's fully decentralized and completely free and this other thing that touches, you know, the current nation state systems, I know that if it's coming in from crypto, that there's a whole world of developers and designers out there that are going to redesign these processes such that 
it'll be fluid for us to make transactions. The friction goes away. And that's really important, right? It's like, think about the internet. All it really did was remove friction. And just ridiculous amounts of productivity comes from it. And so, yeah, I feel like there's this like massive power grab right now. And it's at the detriment to society building good stuff for the future. It's like just this massive anchor that we're dragging. And it really kind of pees me um, because I'm exposed to it all the time. Uh, yeah and i know how good it is on the other side so that is interesting your view of the world seems to be that there's a lot of friction and removing that friction makes it easier to trade and i think that kind of describes the history of money and economies and things like that the less friction there is in you know humans being able to trade the more prosperous we tend to become would that describe your philosophy yeah, I think so. And yeah, uh, pretty much. <laughs> but, but yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know, I, like a lot of this is just my personal frustrations using traditional systems. And I don't know, they're getting worse, Jimmy. Have you noticed they're getting worse? They're not getting better. You know, when I was a kid, like these systems, they were better. They're getting worse. Like I don't have, to, I used to be able to walk into, to any bank and start a bank account. That, you can't do that anymore, you know. I'm in Hong Kong here and I just asked for, uh, I mean, this is it's slightly different here. I just asked for a extension, not an extension, like the credit card limit being too small here. So I just, they mm. gave me a new credit card. It was too small. I said, can I get an increase? And they're saying I have to walk in to do it. <laughs> and I was like, it didn't used to be that bad, you know. Yeah, it, I don't know. I'm not going to rant. <laughs> rant. It's, yeah, let's. <laughs> yeah, anyway. <laughs> well, so I think it would be very irresponsible of me to have you on the show and not have you talk about your predictions for Bitcoin. Because obviously, you're a trader, you've been watching a lot of the stats and, uh, you know, a lot of your tweet threads about, you know, how much move money is moving in and out of exchanges and stuff like that are like retweeted and liked by the thousands. So can you give us sort of like a summary of where you think the Bitcoin macro environment is headed? Oh, it's a tricky one right now because it's going so fast upwards. Mm. You know, normally we, you know, everyone that's been in this space long enough knows that we're locked into these four-year cycles and we get this halvening where, you know, the new coins mined into the supply is reduced by a factor of two. It's halved every four years and that creates a supply shock. And so that's like a bullish impulse. The sellers get halved and it forces the price upwards over the, you know, ensuing year and a half effectively until Generally, a year and a half after the halvening, we, that runs out of steam. It generally well, always creates a bull market and mania sort of kicks in and it feeds itself. And then when that starts to run out of steam, we get the bear market, right? And currently, you know, we've, we can wrap a lot of models around it. And the model that I have, which is just a simple like mean reversion, which is a moving average over the market cap of all time and that has picked all the tops. It's a pretty simple model, but it continues to work. And if you kind of zoom into when this sort of bullish impulse runs out of steam, it would be fourth quarter of this year near Christmas. And the trajectory is starting to arc upwards. And it's currently, I'm just looking at the chart now, and it's... It looks like $200,000 of Bitcoin is going to be too conservative. It's looking like we're in the two to 300, possibly even $400,000 of Bitcoin. If, you know, as, yeah, if, if the amount of capital that's been coming continues to move to the price like we're seeing, we're looking in the two to $400,000 per coin by the end of this year. And, like we're in unprecedented times we've got like uh like crazy amounts of 
monetary debasement happening. I forget the figure, it's something like 20 to 30% more US dollars in the system than we had last year. $1.9 trillion just got printed. What was it this this week? <laughs> so yeah, it looks like it. <laughs> everyone's running to hard assets, buy anything that's not fiat. So we see the stock market running up, Bitcoin going ballistic, house market starting to get frothy. And then that's superimposed into this cycle where, you know, the herds arrived, the institutional money's arrived. And that's the interesting thing to look at this cycle is tracing their impact on the markets. And certainly it's been ridiculous. Like Michael Saylor started accumulating for micro strategy back in, was it, I think, October? No, it was August. I think it was, now I look at the chart, it was August when he started doing that. And by the the time he did his second buy, we started to get a very, very vertical rise in price. And that was, interestingly, we're seeing gold start to underperform. It's like as soon as the institution started buying Bitcoin, we've seen gold price start to slump. And you'd think that, you know, gold is a safe haven asset. It's something people would buy as the monetary base is being like, inflated away the us dollar is being printed like crazy and it's going down while bitcoin's going up and and so it, it seems like people are selling their gold and allocating into bitcoin and these institutions have been moving quite traditionally they move quite slowly and i think the timing right now is fourth quarter of this year that we you know they'll be a lot of them will be ready to buy. You know there's a lot of approvals that are needed, board of directors that sort of thing, SEC approvals. That like Michael Saylor mentioned that it would take about six months for the normal company, six to nine months for the normal company to get ready. So it looks like we'll have buying momentum in the tail end of this year when things are meant to peter out. So I'm not sure what's going to happen. We're rising at a very fast rate, and it feels like we're we're going to kind of have to slow down at some point, maybe in this next quarter, and have some sort of longer-term consolidation over a few months before we can move forward again. And then if we have this extra burst of buying power near the tail end of this year, then that, you know, the 10... Near the end of this year, normally you kind of expect people to take some profits, pay their taxes, and that's usually enough to tip the market when the buy momentum's getting very weak into a bear market. Now, if we get like another impulse of buying from very large institutions or even sovereigns, then we could blow that into extended super cycle, as Dan Howard talks about. So that's a really interesting thing to look at for the fourth quarter of this year. I don't know exactly how that's going to take shape, and but I can usually see roughly what's happening in the markets three months ahead by looking at the blockchain and the flows and you know trying like creating. It's really quite investigative. What I do is we have a lot of charts, a lot of analytics that look at different aspects of the capital movements within this network. And it's really a case of being a detective going, is it this? Is it that? That looks like an institution, institutional buying or, or, or selling, or is that an old, old um, whale selling? You know, and so you kind of look at different aspects of the blockchain to determine the participant or the the group of participants that's moving the market at a particular time and that gives gives us a read about three up to three months ahead but right now i can't tell what's going to happen but it looks like we're going to have some interesting dynamics near the fourth quarter so yeah (laughs) (laughs) so two hundred thousand is conservative you'd think it's going to go up higher than that by the end of the year yeah and that means that that means that this year Bitcoin flips gold. It, oh, flips, wow. it flips gold not in market cap, but it flips gold in financial cap because only forty percent of gold is used for financial purposes in the financial markets. And that means Bitcoin 
will flip gold for a financial safe haven asset, um, mm. which is pretty soon. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. That's kind of crazy to think about 13 or 12, 13 years in and, you know, you're, you're already flipping gold almost. Yeah. Yep. It's almost a phase transition because gold's had 6,000 years in the sun and yeah, a whole new world coming, coming soon. So exciting time. Exciting indeed. All right. So where can people find you? How can people follow you? Yeah, so Twitter is the best place to follow me. Like, I'm on Woonomic, and I tweet probably every day, maybe every second or third day of the latest stuff that I'm seeing happening. And from my profile page, there's a link. I I also do a a market intelligence letter. It kind of reads the blockchain, and it's called the Bitcoin Forecast, and it makes a read of the market over the next, you know, few weeks of where the probability of direction will move and also gives you an idea if you're a hodler it gives you an idea of where we are in the, in the cycle and i've heard a lot of people say it's been great just for them to stay in it because they've been freaked out the price rising so quickly and saying it's overheated and you know obviously the we've not it's not overheated according to the investment flows coming in so there's that the bitcoin forecast which is linked from my profile page and i have a website called charts.weeble.com and where a lot of the charts that i i talk about are listed and the live charts that you can follow yeah well it's been pretty interesting i had no idea that you went through some of this stuff so thanks for coming on yeah thank you it's been it's been fun thanks for having the having the podcast jimmy really enjoyed it well that wraps it up for this episode of bitcoin fixes this willie Wu can be found at at woonomic on twitter and charts.wubull.com until next time Fiat the Linda asked.